episode 113 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Jim Higgins at Aviation Department, University of North Dakota. I'm a professor. Navy Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today is a uh, special episode. It is uh, a state of the industry episode, and I haven't done one of these in quite some time. I think it's been almost two months now, maybe a month and a half. But uh, I have had a lot of messages from uh, you guys from Pilot the Pilot on Instagram, just saying, "Hey, I want another state of the industry. Please, can we get another state of the industry?" So I reached out to Jim, and we made it happen. Today's episode talks about where we are today in aviation. Uh, we don't really focus on what has happened in the past. We focus on today and kind of what might be coming up in the future. We talk about furloughs or possible furloughs. We talk about consolidation. We talk about maybe there's a paradigm shift in aviation where major airline isn't the dream job of choice after all of this. So we will see what could happen. Um, I thank you for listening to all these episodes. Jim is a very, very knowledgeable. I'm very thankful for, for Jim Higgins in North Dakota for letting him come on and share his knowledge. Knowledge. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on our website, pilotthepilothq.com. It has links to Patreon, our swag shop, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all our social media. So please follow us there if you enjoy this as well. Share this with all your friends. Uh, these episodes, especially the state of the industry, if you don't share them with the interviews, share them with the state of the industry because I think it's necessary for everyone to listen to these. But Aviation, I want to keep you any longer. So without any further ado, here's the state of the industry with Dr. Jim Higgins. Jim, what's going on? Welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me back, Justin. Good to hear from you. Yeah, what is this like back to back to back to back episode? Like, I think I lost track on how many we actually recorded now, but this <laughs> might be the fourth one, I believe. I think we're on four, maybe three, something like that. Yeah, I think it's four. Yeah. And uh, like I said, thanks for thanks for continuing to think of me. I'm always happy to come and talk to the yeah, folks any- that tune in. Anytime. Yeah. It's actually been very, very requested. So I've had a lot of DMs from people on Instagram saying, Hey, I need another state of the industry. I need another state of the industry. So I hope that we can offer some value and that we can either just, just talk about what's going on and just, uh, just talk it out and, and figure it out because it's definitely unheralded and it, it definitely seems to still be having its way right now with the industry, even though it does seem like some airlines are having more passengers, but I mean, who knows? Who knows if that's temporary, if that's going to be long-term. So we have, we have a lot to chat about. Absolutely. And we definitely are in a much better position now, at least with uh, more data available. And uh, a lot of the unknowns that we've had and we previously discussed, there's a lot more information out there about that. Yeah, there definitely is. I was... Uh, so going to and from the airplane I've been flying, uh, I think for, let's see, maybe two weeks ago, I was on an airline and I was one of four people on a 737. And then coming back from Charlotte to Chicago, I think I was one of like 130 people on a 321, maybe 150. So it definitely seems like uh, some people are wanting to fly. Uh, Now, obviously, they're still operating on very limited schedules. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the demand is back, but it does seem like some routes are picking up a little bit. Well, there's no doubt the data indicates that uh, we're doing slightly better uh, than what we've done in the past. There's all kinds of metrics out there you can look at. You can look at the TSA data, which indicates, you know, we've seen a, we're now in some cases north of 200,000 passengers a day, where, whereas just a, you know, a week or two ago, we were under 100,000. So, so there's some, some good indicators like that. Uh, of course, um, you have to bear in mind that one year ago, you know, we were close to 2 million. We were, you know, between 1.5 and 2 million 
uh, boardings or people going through security screenings. And then um, when you look at the load factors, load factors um, are definitely higher now. But as you pointed out, uh, the main reason for that is, is the capacity reductions that have uh, pretty much hit uh, in full force throughout the industry. So that's going to necessarily increase uh, a, a lot of those, um, you know, a lot of passengers traveling on those fewer flights. It will. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still good news. It's still trending up, albeit may might be a slight trend up, but it still shows that people might be willing to travel. You know, they might be willing to to go on an airplane to go travel once this is all eradicated or we have a, a, um, a vaccine. So, I mean, it is good news to see. Like we said, it, it's not like everything's back to normal now. There definitely are more people traveling, but uh, it is good to see for sure. And hopefully that is going to keep trending up. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we are seeing some other signs. You know, the uh, American Airlines CEO reported that there was an uptick in 90-day out uh, bookings. Uh, still historically low, but, uh, you know, it's up. And so we're starting to see some of that as well. Uh, we're also monitoring overseas to see what's going on overseas. And in Asia, we're seeing, you know, a slight uptick there as well. Uh, Europe, not so much. Australia, not so much yet. But um uh, pretty soon, I think you'll start seeing that. I think what you said was key. Once that uh, uh, there's a vaccine or a, or a therapeutic that is uh, completely effective, although there is a new therapeutic since we last talked that that seems to be uh, well, it's approved now for for treatment. It seems to help. Uh, but until you get that certainty, uh, you know, I think you're right. I think people are still going to be hesitant. I will say though, there sure seems to be a, a pent up demand. I, I know one of the questions that was out there is, you know, will this virtual meeting that all the business folks are doing on Zoom and Skype and other places like that, will that replace uh, travel? And I don't know how many Zoom meetings you've been in or Skype meetings you've had, Justin, but I got to tell you, there's all kinds of new terms out there like Zoom hell and things like that. <laughs> um, I really think that uh, at the end of the day, people are going to need to get back face-to-face, even in this digitized economy, even amongst our younger people that seem to be more into the online digitalization uh, I think people, you just can't replace that. And so I think you, you'll see that once the economy uh, supports the return as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I haven't been on too many Zoom calls. That's one of the good things of being a pilot is that uh, everything that we do is just go fly. You know, we have to be there as for now. Who knows what the future look like? But right now we have to be in the airplane to go fly. No Zoom calls, no Zoom flights. So I haven't had to deal with it too much, but it sounds pretty terrible. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Yeah, there's just, you know, uh, if you can get through, well, if you have a, a Zoom call with six participants, uh, statistically speaking, one of them is going to have some kind of a technical problem, either with their internet connection or something. And then just the jumping on top of each other and the normal rules of conversation, is, is, it's been kind of tough. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, it will be tough. It'll be good when they can travel and everyone will appreciate it. Uh, I remember last time we were talking, I think it was when the bill first was signed, the first relief bill, uh, the airlines got billions of dollars. Um, what have we seen from that? Obviously, that's going to help and that keeps furloughs until October for sure. But what have you been reading? What have you been seeing? Has every airline taken it? Is it a, a major airline thing or regionals that have access to it too? What's kind of been your understanding of how everything's been playing out since we have some time to kind of understand and read through it and know what's going on? Sure. Well, most of the major airlines have, have taken it for sure. And many regional airlines, in fact, I'd say industry-wide, the vast majority have taken some kind of a um, uh, money from the program. Uh, on the regional side, if, if the regional was asking for less than $100 million, they didn't have to go through any extra steps like uh, issuing warrants or ownership or equity. Um, the one regional, my understanding is it wasn't able to uh, take full, full advantage of it, at least as near as I can understand, 
complicated as Republic because they're structured privately. And there's some others out there that are structured privately. And so they had some um, corporate bylaws and corporate governance that uh, interfered with their ability to, to take some of that money. Although, you know, they're private, right? So a lot of the information is not necessarily available publicly on what's been used, what hasn't. Air Wisconsin is another one that's privately owned that uh, uh, has reported that it has taken some money. Uh, the good news is, is any airline that took any uh, type of bailout, they uh, have moved, they basically agreed to not furlough uh, until um, the end of September. So October 1 becomes the big looming date in the industry. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, going back to, to airlines taking the money, how does it work for a wholly owned regional? Can they take the money themselves, even though maybe their parent company, American, uh, is already taking money? Or does American take the money and then divvy it out as they deem necessary? No, I, I believe it's the uh, I believe it's the first part. So even though that they're wholly owned, the ownership of the company doesn't necessarily matter. They're their own individual entity, so they're responsible for themselves. They're, you know, every airline's responsible for shareholders in, in the general business sense. But but um, no, as far as I know, there was no divvying up from any of the majors to the regionals. Each company that wanted to apply for and receive grants or loans did it on their own accord. Okay, good. Yeah, I could just imagine Americans like, yeah, we'll, we'll take out the money for you. Don't worry. Uh, if things get rough, we'll make sure we'll take care of you. You know, you know how that always works out. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, Dad, can I have some money? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talking about that, so obviously there was a report that came out, uh, it kind of listed the airlines that were in the best position per cash, how much, or whether it was assets or cash. And I remember Sky West and Allegiant were one and two, and it was kind of saying how they have enough cash to maybe last this whole virus for a year or 11 months, whatever it may be. Is, was that a true determiner on who can actually last the longest if they didn't get the, the money? Or was that kind of just a, a, a clickbaited type article where it didn't have much facts to it? Do you remember that one by any chance? I, I don't remember the article, but, but the concepts you're talking about are very, very clear. I mean, let's, let's put it in perspective. Sky West uh, turned a profit in quarter one. Uh, I think it was 54. I mean, that's, that's highly unusual in this kind of an environment. I mean, obviously, they had a very good January, February but everyone knows what happened in March, and yet they were still able to turn a profit. Um, Allegiant uh, made so much money uh, before all of this happened. They had a lot of money, uh, cash on hand. Um, so I'm not at all surprised. I do think, ask the CEOs of these different companies, would you like to engage in a war of attrition with your competitors? They'd probably say, no, we'd prefer to compete another way. But what you're saying to me uh, is correct in the sense that if this is going to be a long protracted uh, you know, tug of war. Uh, there definitely are airlines and air carriers that are better positioned. And the two you mentioned are in their frontiers. Another one uh, I would put in their spirit would be another one. Um, the one that uh, arguably might be in the not so best position would be like the Americans and the Uniteds. Uh, Delta actually had a pretty strong, fairly strong, I mean, not as good as say, you know, a Southwest or an Allegiant, but they had very, uh, fairly strong cash on hand as well. But yeah, American and United would be. Uh, the ones that might be feeling the pinch the most and the urgency the most. Yeah, it almost seems like right now United is the one that is the most vocal about how bad it is, where the, everyone else might be keeping it a little bit closer to their chest. I feel like every every other week I'm reading something about how United's like, well, we're going to be smaller. We need to we need to downsize. Be prepared for furloughs. Be prepared for this. I don't know if it's gonna if it's like 100 percent a scare tactic or if it's actually the case because 
each airline is kind of figuring out how they can save the most money. If they can save the most money with pilot contracts, with concessions, and maybe that's an option. Or if it's really, truly that dire of a situation for, say, a United or an American that that had a lot of debt going into this. And that debt was, to they were buying more airplanes than everyone else. So maybe they didn't take as many airplanes in, save some money that way. So it, it what do you think about kind of United being the most vocal versus maybe a Delta or the other airlines that are keeping it or Southwest say where they're not really saying too much at all? Well, it's a great question, Justin. You know, the truth is there's a lot of conspiracy theories that abound in the internet and other places about the difference between the CEOs. You look at the the Parker message from American, it's, it's very, very different from the Kirby message at United, as you point out. In fact, United recently announced what would be tantamount to a displacement bid or an announcement that they're going to displace. And it was a staggering number. I want to say uh, 4,500 pilots, 5,000 pilots were basically, in essence, if things, worst case scenario, go forward, United is basically saying they're going to have an overage of about 5,000 pilots uh, come October, November. Now, um, for a pilot out there that reads that, especially a United pilot, one of the first things that might cross your mind is, oh, they're going to furlough 5,000 pilots. Um, I think that that's highly unrealistic because um, uh, the furloughing of 5,000 pilots would would cause training events that would churn for years, you know, minimum two years probably. However, it's probably fair to say that airlines are going to use this time to um, meet, to change and shape their fleets. And in many cases, they'll be smaller uh, and more agile, in which case that that may uh, cause some kind of a, of a furlough. I think it's probably safe if you're a pilot out there in the industry to at least mentally plan for the fact that there's going to be churn. And if you're near the bottom of seniority list, uh, you know, that there's there's likely going to be some kind of disruption. But there's two things to pay attention to. Uh, thing number one is, you know, is United, is United, for instance, you know, they're making, they're being very vocal, as you say. Um, some people have said that's one way to kind of uh, put pressure on the labor unions to get things. That's that's one conspiracy theory. Uh, I've heard others say that they're positioning almost from day one, they position that the bailout was not going to be enough. And so maybe this could be another round of bailouts for after October uh, to help uh, stabilize the industry as well. Uh, so those are, those are things to keep track of. So if there's another CARES Act or, or some type of an act that helps. The other thing is, is if the passengers start returning, even the leisure passengers, remember our load factors, break-even load factors, probably in the neighborhood of 50%. So we don't need all of the passengers to come back at once, but we do need at least half of them to come back or 70% of them to come back so that we can at least keep our head above water. If those things happen, coupled with the big retirements planned over the next few years, we could really minimize uh, the furloughs and displacements. Yeah, and you you talked about 70% or 50% as a break-even. Would that be 50% of the old schedule or that be 50% of the new schedule operating less planes and maybe more efficient airplanes since they're, they're phasing out? Delta's getting rid of uh, all the older aircraft. I mean, same with American United. They seem to be parking and putting those bet, those planes to rest. So it wouldn't, when if, just kind of hypothetically speaking, because we obviously don't know, we don't have the books, but do you think that 50%, let's say that's what they need, is that of 50% load factor of what they're operating right now or 50% of what they are operating in the past? Well, if they become a more efficient fleet, even though fuel, the cruel irony here is fuel is really low right now, but but long-term you want to structure your airline to take advantage of the fact that fuel is obviously going to spike up at some point in the future. It could very well. So you should be prepared for that. So you you do want to reshape your fleet to try to uh, take advantage of that with getting these super efficient aircraft. But um, 
that being said, uh, there's going to be some efficiencies there as well. So I think the answer to your question is, is whatever, whatever they have out there, whatever the percent out there, it's going to be structured to uh, about a 50%, you know, give or take 10% in either direction, but about a 50% break-even load factor is about the capacity we're going to see. Don't forget the ancillary income we've talked about in the past and uh, also the revenue management folks. And my understanding from some of the revenue management folks in the industry is right now they're just smoked busy because they're, they're, doing, they're doing events that they've never seen in their lifetimes. They're trying to model things that they really have no data for. And it's been very, very difficult. I mean, you know, one way to get the load factors up, obviously, would be to offer $10 tickets, right? You know, to go from New York to Los Angeles. Sounds silly, but, you know, one side of that is, is, well, it's still $10. And if you're going to go empty anyway, that seat perishes. So, you know, we we haven't always seen, always seen, I want to be very clear what I say here. We haven't always seen the price matching to match what we're seeing uh, from industry demand right now across the board. And uh, the official reason I'm hearing why we haven't seen, we've certainly seen a lot of drops, but not not all across the board. And so one of the reasons I'm hearing that is the revenue management folks uh, are just having difficulty modeling modeling things. But but don't forget that. So I think that brings us back to about that 50% break-even load factor. You know, no, no airline wants to operate on a break-even basis. They want to be profitable long-term. But as far as just contingency planning, getting everyone back on their feet, if we can fill these planes to about 50%, um, I think that that would be uh, helpful. Yeah. Like you said, no one wants to operate break even, but I think right now they'll take break even any month right now, just so they can stop the hemorrhaging of money that's happening with most of these airlines. There's no doubt. And they're absolutely going through uh, hemorrhaging. That's, that's the exact way to say it. I mean, and you know, you can't blame these airlines at all. There's not a single airline you can blame for this. You know, the truth is, is, uh, they didn't ask for this. Nobody asked for this, right? A lot, 80,000 plus people have died to this point in time in the U.S. and across the world is a lot more. Nobody asked for this. But there's there's no doubt that this uh, pandemic has had especially dramatic event on industries like the airlines. And like I mentioned to you before, you can take the most profitable companies in the world. And if a day from now you tell them, hey, you're only going to be able to sell 10% of your product, there's no company in the world that can survive that long term. So it, it's a very difficult time. And, no you bring up, and you bring up a good point in talking about how no company could predict for this. No company could survive this for a prolonged period of time. I remember when this first happened and the airlines wanted to bail out and there was criticism for it. And rightly so. I mean, airlines were making more money than they ever made in, in the history of airlines. And they were just making money like crazy. And, and to the common person, to a normal person, maybe even a business person, like, well, why don't you have two years saved up? Like, why do you expect a, a person to have this much money saved up? And when you're charging so much, making so much money, why don't you have this saved up? But when there's no precedent for how much money you need to be saved or to save, or maybe the precedent was, all right, we need to have six months of cash. Nothing has ever been worse than six months. And they don't, they truly didn't know that this was possible, that there could be a demand drop like we've seen. And who knows how long that drop will last. So there's no way for, for an airline, there's no way for for even a person to to be prepared for the future that could be coming with this virus or just let alone a small business, you know? That's right. You know, post 9-11, the airlines uh, feeling for pandemics, we, we, they had three. They weren't, I don't know that they were fully declared pandemics by the World Health Organization, but, you know, you had um, SARS, you had MERS, and you had um, uh, H1N1, right? Back uh, just a few years ago. Uh, I guess now it's more than a few years ago, back uh, 2010, 2011. And so the experience base that the airlines had uh, for this level 
was such that, yes, there would be an impact, especially international, but nobody foresaw a complete pandemic uncontained that crawled through the world and basically halted economies worldwide. Nobody planned for that. I mean, the only analogous experience in terms of an economic effect would be like outbreak of a world war or something like that. And, and, you know, and, and actually in teaching my airline management students, that's about before all this pandemic came, that's about the only thing I could come up with uh, that what could disrupt the industry overnight, what could cause things, you know, even another terrorist attack, which would be horrible, would have a dramatic effect. But because it's in our experience base and people know how to handle that, um, I, I think economically speaking, I'm not talking about the psychological damage, but economically speaking, uh, it, you know, it's, it's in our experience base. We can handle it. But nobody foresaw anything like this. And you can't blame the airlines. Did they live a little high on the hog? I don't know. I mean, you have to go back to the philosophy of a company. And what's a company supposed to do? Well, a company in the United States in a capitalistic market exists for its shareholders and in many cases for its employees, depending on the philosophy. And so giving out uh, dividends, giving out uh, profit sharing, uh, buying back stocks to increase the value of your company, these are traditionally very good things that are done by companies. And except for the pandemic, which, of course, happened in short order, which nobody saw, now these decisions are looking like, wow, wouldn't you have loved to have had all that money on hand? Well, well, of course. And, and by the way, as I mentioned before, there are some companies that have a very conservative outlook. You know, Alaska Airlines is one. And, you know, there, there's others around the world as well. They just keep a lot of cash on hand. And, you know, the drawback or the argument against that, some people would say, is that when we're in a boom economy and times are good, you know, they don't expand as rapidly as some of their competitors. But when times are bad, post 9-11, pandemic, they seem to keep their head above water a lot better. So it's just, you know, you can't blame the companies for the decisions they made, in my opinion, leading up to the pandemic, because A, nobody foresaw the pandemic and this kind of an effect. And uh, B, they were just doing what good companies would normally do when they're profitable. Yeah, no, you see you hit it spot on. Uh, this question's kind of a, a hypothetical question. It might have you kind of think about it. It might not actually be true. If you don't feel comfortable talking about it, no big deal. But uh, let's say right now in Allegiant, a Sky West, uh, a Spirit, a Frontier, I feel like they kind of have an opportunity right now where everyone's on a level playing field. Everyone's kind of operating the same similar, mainly a similar market right now. Uh, do they have the opportunity now to maybe prove to the general flying public that, hey, like you should consider us in the future over, say, a Delta American United? Is there an opportunity for maybe a smaller, even a regional air, uh, carrier to make their way up the the totem pole and be come out come out of this on top? And then maybe 10 years, people are flying to SkyWest 787. You know, Do you think that's yeah. possible right now? Well, the short answer, I think, is yes. But it's, it's, you really ask a great question uh, because one of the big unknowns right now is what business plan is going to prevail long term. Obviously, the carriers you mentioned, the Frontier, Spirits, Allegiance, uh, right now, their living is based very differently. Profitability is based very differently on, say, a Delta revenue model, for instance. You know, every traveler that comes on board a Spirit or an Allegiant you know, that's going to represent a profit margin, even though they're what we would traditionally call, for the most part, leisure travelers. Business travelers may, in fact, fly on those airlines. However, because of the convenience, market shares, frequency timings, loyalty programs, all of the things that the large legacy carriers do to draw on the business traveler, um, I think it's unlikely that on uh, most markets, uh, you're going to see any kind of long-term replacement. However, however, here's the case of point. This is what's going to be really interesting. 
if you take the United uh, concept right now, at least what they're saying publicly, and they're preparing for the worst case scenario. So let's say they park 30% of their fleet. Okay, it's a dramatic, dramatic way to redo the entire fleet. And it's going to take several years for them to get everything optimized from that move. What happens if the economy recovers very quickly? You know, uh, I mean, most of the time after recession, there is pent up demand. So if you go back historically, you will see a bounce, whether it's a, you know, a bathtub, a U-shaped, a V-shaped, an L-shaped, whatever shape the recovery is, it ultimately will bounce way above um, the baseline from prior to the recession. It doesn't always last. But but the question becomes, and what happens if a Southwest or an Allegiant or a SkyWest, they happen to be in a position with extra capacity while a large carrier is retooling their fleet and they don't have the capacity to put on the market, is it possible that one of these other opportunistic carriers overtakes uh, some traditional markets and uh, literally recaptures a market share? So three, four years from now, you see a very different route structure system amongst the legacies. That's the risk of going overboard if you're a United American Delta. That, that's the absolute risk is if you go too far. Uh, and it's tough, right? Because these kind of decisions have to be made well in advance because it takes months to train people. It takes months to go through leasebacks. It takes months to acquire new aircraft, years to acquire new aircraft. So it is really a gamble right now. It's like a poker table and nobody really knows. Well, it's like a blackjack table. Nobody knows right now if the dealer has a 21, you know, or a 20, uh, you know, and whether you should hit or stay is really what the analogy would come down to. Some are saying we're going to hit. Some are saying we're going to stay. And what I will tell you is the market uh, is very um, unsympathetic. It's just going to do what the market does. And uh, someone's going to lose and someone's going to win if everyone carries out the business plans as they're currently announcing. Yeah, absolutely. And it brings up another interesting point where you talk about the market share. You talk about gates. Uh, from what I know right now, they've kind of waived the whole use it or lose it gate policy that a lot of airports have had. But say the market's back and a United has parked all those planes or say whatever, insert whatever airline that parked planes here and they have a heavy presence. They're like, hey, we need you to use these gates if you have six months or you have two months to use these gates or else they're going to go up for rebid. I mean, that could be pretty detrimental and could have a terrible impact on a company. It could be a great opportunity, like we said, for, for an upcoming airline. You're absolutely correct. You know, and that, the, the real, the gate constraints, the acceptance factors at airports, you know, all of that right now is very low. You can fly anywhere you want right now. You can probably take a Cessna 172 into Hartsfield without much of a, much of a problem right now. But um, that being said, uh, what you're saying is exactly correct. There is a very real risk that if airlines go too far on their route restructuring and they have to spend an extra year restructuring, optimizing, redeveloping, redeploying, that there are carriers out there. You take a look at uh, Frontier, for instance. You know they're scheduled to double in the next three years in terms of their Airbus order. Okay, they they their CEO has come out and said we are not interrupting those plans. And right now it looks like they're going to have a ready supply of pilots if there are furloughs that take place. And um, it's a very dangerous time now. Just to add some balance, you know uh, Frontier. You know they, maybe they're misreading the tea leaves as well. Maybe. Maybe, you know, the United model, the American model of, uh, you know, capacity control, redeployment and fleet reductions, maybe that is the winning model. You know, it's going to take years, probably retrospectively, to see. And then the other thing, we've talked about this before, too, is, is there going to be any consolidation? Because that's another interesting concept here as well. You know, one way to survive through this type of turbulent time, as we've talked in the past, is a um, consolidation merger. 
And the prices are so low right now relative to historically where they've been that some would say this is a, a kind of an interesting, maybe optimal time to look at consolidation if it's allowed by the government. Yeah, I mean, consolidation is another interesting topic because think about it uh, from the frontier aspect. Say they see this as an opportunity to improve their brand, improve their airline, and, and actually compete with uh, the top three in, in Southwest or the top four, however you view it. Uh, if someone comes to them, they're in the, if they're right in what they think is going to happen, if say an American comes like, oh my gosh, we have to buy Frontier and able to position our airline for the future. If I'm Frontier, you're like, no, sorry, <laughs> we decided to do, you know, it brings up a very interesting point. It's like, all right, do we sell at a low or do we really put all our cards in the fact that we think we're right and take this opportunity to fully expand and do what we think is going to happen? You know, it's going to bring up a very interesting idea. It's like, well, what a spirit, what a JetBlue, would they want to even want to do that if they believe, truly believe that their business model is correct? So, the board of directors, which would ultimately make the decision for any of these publicly held companies, uh, you know, what they'd have to evaluate in that situation. Let's say, for instance, the one that you, you sometimes hear about, and I'm, I, I, I have no inside knowledge. I have no knowledge of this whatsoever compared to what you see on the Internet. Right. But one one that you often see is something like United and a spirit. Right. Let's say United approach spirit. Well, uh, I don't know what the spirit board of directors would say, but what they would evaluate, they'd evaluate two things. They'd evaluate. The future market opportunity, if they went by themselves, exactly what you're talking about, Justin, versus, you know, combining with a network carrier and the economy of scope, the economy of density that they're going to get. And probably, you know, depending on how things go, uh, you know, probably uh, potentially a, a nice windfall for their investors. So, so um, you know, that's a complicated thing, you know, and companies have made bets before and they've been horribly wrong. There's been horrible mergers in the past. There's been really good mergers. But from a United perspective, uh, and again, I have no knowledge of this, but if you want to hedge your bet on this, if you want to hedge your bet, one thing you can do is right-size your, your fleet, or not right-size, bad word, maybe uh, redeploy and optimize your fleet during this turmoil. But maybe you do look to take one of these uh, more vibrant, growing carriers like a Frontier or a Spirit, and maybe that's how you hedge your bets and you get some kind of a, of a merger. I mean, the labor issues would be very complicated and, you know, you know, everything that goes with a merger, they don't always work out well, but, but um, these are things that, you know, these are things that pilots uh, love to talk about usually over a beer as they pontificate about, you know, the ins and outs of the industry. But I do think that um, one year from now, we should do this one year from now, Justin, we should go back to this conversation and see if there's been any consolidation or any attempts at consolidation. I would bet you a, a, a beer that there's definitely going to be something either in the regional levels, major levels, there's going to be a, a very big change in landscape, uh, whether it's through consolidation, whether it's through market share, uh, whether it's through, you know, thing like a, a company like a Sky West uh, growing into more major uh, independent routes. That doesn't always work, by the way. You got independence air out there. People can tell you about that. But but it's a uh, it's a very interesting uh, time and it'll be fun to retrospectively examine, you know, what, what happened. It is an interesting time. And it, I mean, it kind of sucks right now for being a pilot in this time, but say in 10, 15 years as a professor teaching this time to students, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, just the, the environment of the world that they were living in and, and the unknown of what they had and what actually went on will be a, just a fascinating, just be able to teach that to future future generations. And I'm sure we'll be learning a lot about this in the, in the, in the future as well. Um, yeah, it's an interesting time. Uh, consolidation is definitely in a factor. It could happen. Um, maybe a SkyWest somehow hits the lottery or Frontier just hedges their bets and like, no, we're not taking any consolidation. We're 
going to be the new American Airlines and and operate said routes. But it, it's really interesting time right now. Uh, it, it sucks being a pilot. It sucks being in the industry during this time. But I mean, we will get through it. It's going to look vastly different as what I think the conversation has come to that, that it is going to be different, whatever it is. I mean, who knows what the actual fleet size. I'm pretty sure every airline so far has said they will be drastically smaller for the next couple of years. So it's definitely going to be different. There's no doubt. And, and, and if I can just talk to some of your um, younger uh, listeners as well, that I get this question a lot. I'm sure you get this question a lot. You know, what does this mean for me? I'm coming into the industry. You know, it's easy for someone like me. I'm approaching 50. And I, you know, I've, you know, like you said, I'll be telling my students I was there during 9-11. I was there during COVID. You know, we'll have those stories. But people that are just coming into the industry, you know, they don't have that experience base yet. This is one of their first tastes of, of the, down, the downside. You know, the advice stays the same, whether times are really good or times are really bad. You know, to be a pilot, a professional pilot, where somebody pays you to fly an aircraft, uh, in my opinion, it has to be in your DNA. There has to be a passion. It has to be something you want. I do think sometimes we do get folks that enter the industry because they think, man, I'm going to make a lot of money. And, and by the way, you can absolutely make a lot of money in this industry. But as we see from COVID and as we see from all of our friends throughout the industry, there's also a lot of churn and disruption and lots of times where you may be furloughed, facing furlough, downgrade, looking for a job, you know, whatever. And so you really need to really want to fly an airplane. And then take a look in the case of a 20-year-old that's looking at coming into the industry. You got to look at this as a 45-year proposition, at least a 45-year proposition. Yeah, year one or two, we might have some effects of, of COVID, which are horrible. And it's not a fun time to be in the industry, as you point out. But you've got 43, you know, 42 years ahead of you. And by the way, there's going to likely be more downturns in the future as well. So when you put the saddle on the airline career, you got to be prepared for a few bucks every now and then. And sometimes they can be, they can knock you off the horse for a while. But, you know, if you stay with it, I think people that have been in the industry for a while, they'll tell you there's nothing better than having the cockpit as your office. It replaces, you know, anything else out there that you can possibly see, but it's gotta be in your DNA. You gotta be in it for the right reasons. And so that's the piece of advice that uh, I always share and I get that question a lot. Yeah, very well said. I couldn't have said it any better myself and I would just echo everything you said there. Um, my next question is kind of an interesting one. So September 11th, there was uh, a new airline being formed or newish. It's pretty new, JetBlue by uh, David Nealman. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. He's actually trying to start an airline right now as well. Uh, Moxie or Breeze, whatever the actual name is. Have you heard anything about the future of that airline? Like, I feel like just the timelines of him starting those two airlines in probably the two worst times of uh, in the aviation industry's history is just kind of wild. Well, the case of Nealman with JetBlue in the late 90s, early 2000s, the reason the timing worked out there is because is not my understanding is his non-compete with Southwest Airlines ran out uh, on the day that he basically started JetBlue. So I think that 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 that's true. It turned out to be during that time. By the way, uh, JetBlue didn't furlough and they remained profitable during the whole 9/11 uh, post recovery, which is kind of interesting. Let me say this about Neilman. I don't I don't know him. I've uh, uh, you know I've read about him. I've studied some of his stuff. We've looked at him in some of our classes. Uh, I would never bet against the guy. Because um, even if you look at what happened with JetBlue, you know, uh, he was able to get Gatespace and Kennedy in the late 90s. And I have to tell you, uh, nobody got Gatespace and Kennedy in the 80s and 90s. It was the most valuable real estate in the world. But somehow this guy came in and he somehow convinced uh, Port Authority for those gates, he, the FAA for acceptance. And, you know, everyone's like, what are you doing operating in New York? If you ever operate in New York, you're going to be a delayed city. It's 
it's never going to work. Low cost isn't going to work like this. And, you know, he obviously proved everyone wrong. So I would never bet against the guy. Uh, as far as I know, he, he announced not too long ago that he's still planning on going forward. He thinks he's got a pretty good uh, niche business plan with those two twenties and the, the hub bypass. And um, I just, you know, he's just a smart guy. And uh, I, if he says he's going to do something, he's proven Morris Air, JetBlue, and now Moxie or, or whatever it ends up being called. Um, I think is, uh, I wouldn't bet against the guy. And Azul down in uh, Brazil too. That's done uh, pretty good in the market down there as well from what I've read. That's right. Yep, absolutely. And uh, he might've been involved up in Canada too. Was he, up, was he involved? I'll have to double check that. He, well, he did some, I can't remember what it was. I remember reading his profile, but I, I agree. He has a very proven track record. He has been a success in a lot of places he's gone. Now, I, when I say success, I don't know the inner workings of everything. Some people might not like him, might not consider him a, a success, but from the outside looking in, it looks like a success, you know, like uh, starting airlines in what could be two of the worst times ever starting an airline. And he could possibly come out with two profitable airlines. I mean, maybe anytime he wants to start a new airline, we should all have our ears raised real high. Be like, all right, something's going to happen. He knows something. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just interesting that kind of JetBlue took off at over 9-11 and now he's trying to start a new airline when the worst time to ever start an airline. So it's definitely interesting to, to keep eyes on that. Uh, I want to move a little bit into furloughs. I know everyone is kind of wanting us to talk about furloughs, trying to hear about furloughs. My first question is, uh, when a company furloughs, so all right, October 1st is going to be new Black the Black Friday, whatever insert doom you could ever say, what a lot of people are predicting, uh, a lot of furloughs in the aviation industry. Um, what does a company have to do? I know that there are some laws. I can't remember what the law is called, where they have to give at least 60 days notice. Are the airlines, are, do they have to follow those laws? Or is it on October 1st, everyone will be furloughed and have no pay? Or on October 1st, they can give out the furlough notice within 60 days of them to collect pay? Do you have any insight on how that would work? So uh, in almost all cases, the furlough provisions are going to be covered by the collective bargaining agreement for the particular airline, it's gonna be spelled out in detail how it has to be done. Now for air carriers that uh, uh, don't have a pilot's union, and it probably would, it would probably fall on the state law would be would be my guess. Uh, I don't know, that's a really good question. I, 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 I'd, I'd actually, that would, I'm not trying to be pro-union here, but that, that would make me a little nervous um, uh, to be honest. But for the air carriers that have uh, labor unions in place, the agreements are going to have a whole section on how furloughing occurs, how much day notice you have to give. It's actually typically not 60 days. It's typically 14 days from the contracts I've read. Um, however, I think that uh, a lot of people, if, if you're if you're near the bottom of a list at an airline that's announced a, a fleet reduction today, I think mathematically, realistically, you should probably mentally plan for uh, that furlough. What are the numbers going to be? How far are they going to go? My personal opinion is, and this is just, you know, I've done forecasts before, but I have not, it's really hard to forecast this one, is yes, there will be furloughs, but I think the furloughs are going to be smaller than uh, what a lot of people are envisioning. I just don't see any way United is going to furlough several thousand pilots, for instance, at least not on day one. I, I just think I just think that's way too big of a gamble because if they're wrong, it could be existential to their organization or certainly... Uh, not recoverable for market share later on. I don't think they'd ever take that chance. Um, so that that's my thought of it. But just, you know, communicate with uh, the labor unions. If you're at a company, I think there's a few out there that don't have a labor union. Uh, look to your HR department to, for guidance on, on how that would work. They're going to all follow the laws for sure if there's no contract in place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's funny how when this is progress, not really funny, it's unfortunate how 
uh, our progression of these talks is where we don't think, I mean, the first couple episodes were like, I mean, we don't really think furloughs, it's going to be a quick rebound, but coronavirus and COVID-19 or whatever you want to call it has just proven to to have an effect. And I think the greatest unknown right now is the fact that we don't know. We don't know if this is going to be, hey, fall, boom, 100% load factors, we're back. Hey, or is that going to be, hey, uh, four years from now, we're 100% back. It's kind of going back to what we said earlier, airlines not being able to plan or this is such an unknown that no one really knows. And that's what's just so weird about the situation. No one knows if this is going to be a uh, six-month furlough. And then, like you said, United scrambling to get pilots, scrambling to get jets out there. That is probably worst-case scenario for any airline right now is to park too many planes and furlough too many pilots. So I, I would hope and I would want to agree with you that I think that maybe they're not going to furlough as many as one might say. I think there could be some scare tactics and unions and and there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. Now, I do think it's a possibility that they could as well. Like if they get, get wind that this is going to be a four year thing, then they're definitely going to have to pull that plug sooner than later, most likely to save their airline. Um, one thing that's really interesting about coronavirus is when with furloughs, I feel like they're predicated on the fact that they go through seniority, obviously based on their union. But with furloughs, they need to be able to retrain. And how can you retrain someone if the training department's not open? So how do you furlough right now? Do you, I mean, obviously you have to buy that, uh, that uh, agreement furlough in order seniority, but how do you go to a union and be like, well, we can't, we need to furlough 600 people, but we need these 737 pilots, but we're not flying an A330 anymore. You know, like, how do you go about that? Yeah. You, if you're, if you're a management, you simply can't, you know, there's been some people have talked about force majeure provisions, which, you know, for acts of God and things like that, uh, would the pandemic be considered an act of God? If so, could you unilaterally um, interrupt the contract? The, the problem with that argument is, is a furlough by definition means the company's, it, it already contemplates a downturn. And so the furlough provisions uh, that are that are negotiated already take all that. It's, it's all already put into the cake. It's one of the ingredients. So I think it's unlikely that would prevail, which means... To answer your question, companies absolutely have to follow the reverse seniority order, which, as you rightly point out, can at times be very problematic for their training scenarios because the people that are at the bottom of the list may not be the people that um, are flying uh, that are that are flying the aircraft that you want to park, right? And so that causes all kinds of problems. Um, that's why I was saying earlier with the thought, you know, you furlough a couple thousand people, the training churn—that's the term we use for it—it it absolutely causes uh, lots of churn and lots of bidding and, and lots of training. And pilots, by the way, it's become a sport in the past. They learn how to bid to maximize the amount of time that they basically, it's going to sound horrible, but it's just the truth, maximize the amount of time that they stay, quote unquote, you know, outside of training. They just continually bid on a new assignment throughout this displacement. And, you know, there's been cases during previous furloughs where people have been collecting paychecks for six months or longer while they're waiting to be inserted back into the training churn. And, you know, and of course that causes big churn problems for the company. You know, I've actually done modeling for um, furloughs at airlines using Monte Carlo simulations, other techniques. It is so hard to predict for companies that have multiple fleet types, what people are going to do. For instance, would you rather be a senior FO or a junior captain? Well, what if that junior captain's in a base that you have, uh, a relative that you can stay in their crash pad at. I mean, these are, it's just so hard to, to model that stuff. Um, and the unions have done this by design. It should, it, the union's going to tell you, and I happen to agree because of my union background, it should be a difficult decision to furlough pilots. It should be a costly decision if you do it in the short term. If you make a mistake, 
because it should be, it's going to be very painful for those employees that leave. It's also going to be painful uh, for the company if they furlough and then have to bring those pilots right back. That would just be a catastrophic uh, decision to say the least. Yeah. But I mean, like we said before, say uh, your airline you work for decides the furlough, but then you also see maybe Frontier is still accepting airplanes and they're actually, maybe they start their hiring. If you really don't believe in your company as a pilot, where are you going to go? You know, you obviously want that seniority number, but if you don't think your airline's going to survive, what's the point of going back? So there could be some churn that way too. And letting go and say, if you get furloughed by a major airline, you're not going to, or if you don't get furloughed, you're never going to want to leave. But if you do get furloughed, it kind of raises that question in your head. Be like, all right, well, let me just like see what other options are out there. You know I mean? Just you got to do due diligence and, and re, you got to do your own kind of, uh, of uh, investigating to see what's best for you. I mean, do you want to be bottom of the list with a, a company that maybe treated you bad or do you want to go to someone that may, might have some more outlook on what might be happening? So the companies are in a very interesting case. And I want to say, I mean, obviously I don't know nearly as much as you do or I haven't done any of these furloughs, but I think they're going to want to hold on to as many pilots as they can they're probably going to enforce more kind of pay cuts, if anything, if I had to imagine. Try to get the pay cuts down. Try to get something down. I don't know with promises or what, but they just, because they have, they don't know when it's going to come back. They don't know how fast it's going to come back. We have nothing to compare this to. So this is almost it's worst case scenario, obviously everything with airlines, but they can't just furlough like furloughing just doesn't make sense. And they have to pick either the both, both ways kind of suck a hundred percent. Then they have to pick the one that's going to suck the least. And they, we just don't know. No, that, that's exactly right. And your point about people that are furloughed don't always come back is is on point uh, because you're exactly right. We've seen that before. After 9-11, some people were furloughed for a very long period of time and uh, came back. But many people, even furloughed for a short time, would find other opportunities in, in the industry. I mean, you know, there are carriers that are still planning on hiring uh, in the future. And, then, you know, it looks, you know, we'll see what happens with the economic downturn. But it looks pretty promising. I mean, you look at like FedEx and UPS, you look at some of the Amazon uh, vendors, uh, you know, Southern Atlas, you know, those groups, uh, they're hiring right now as we speak. Uh, a lot of the uh, private jets, you know, Delta private jets and some of the other, you know, so there are definitely opportunities out there. And, um, you know, these folks that are going to be uh, furloughed from these airlines are going to be super employable, right? And, you know, maybe Neil may start a new airline, he's going to find a ready supply as well, as we mentioned. So, so, you know, um, uh, I do think it is a big risk for the company to furlough, especially in any large numbers. They really have to be certain about their economic data, which, quite frankly, nobody, even the best economists in the world, are not certain about. Nobody knows. You know, there's, there's two steps to this recovery. Step one is we have to get people comfortable with flying over their fear of catching coronavirus on a plane. Once that happens, then we have to get through the economic effects that are lingering. Those are the two things. Uh, so when those two things happen, you'll get this. And the question is, is how quickly is that going to rebound? How quickly is that going to go? I will tell you, if you talk to uh, corporate travel agencies that have large accounts, they all on the books right now, of course, this can change too, but they all have plans to send their employees uh, out as soon as uh, business travel starts again, uh, as soon as they get the okay, you know, uh, we start opening things up. Uh, you know, I think you're going to start seeing some of those larger accounts. It's not going to be enough to make up for all the business loss, but it's it's a start. So it's going to be really interesting. It's just a real big gamble to make a real big furlough right now, in my opinion. Yeah, I 100% agree. 
Uh, this also brings up an interesting kind of, uh, not age-old question, but just like a competition. Like who who has the best job? Who is, uh, right in the, for the past 30, 40 years, it's been uh, major airline pilot is what you want to do. But I feel like we're in a situation right now where maybe a, a bigger corporate operation could come on up and swoop up and be the ideal job. Or does cargo come back to being like the ideal job, the, the ultimate job, the ultimate goal, just because it has proven time and time again that through a pandemic, Pandemic, through September 11th, a terrorist attack, through everything that they've been able to rebound. They've kind of been able to buck the trend of, of aviation kind of contracting and feeling those effects, and they've still been able to fly. Uh, they, they fly more necessities. I mean, does, it, does an airline try to do more in cargo now because they, they want to see, they see that opportunity to make more money? So it brings up two questions. Uh, would pilots rather choose cargo in the future with the, the hopes that they don't go single pilot or pilotless? Or do, they, do you think the, the trend of, I want to be a major airline pilot, is still going to be the the number one goal. Well, that's really interesting. You know, um, uh, I do talk to a lot of people that are entering the industry, a lot of people that have been in the industry for a while, and people have really strong opinions on whether or not they want to fly cargo or not. You know, my father retired at UPS as a pilot there, right? So, uh, and I also, my one of my first jobs in the industry was a night freight pilot. You know, I fly in the middle of the night. Of course, the big knock uh, to some pilots has always been the, the back of the clock flying. That's kind of always been a concern. Uh, but that's changing more and more. We're seeing a lot of daytime flying. But what you say is correct in that it, it does seem to be a little more stability. Also, when you look at the contracts at, say, a FedEx and UPS, I, I think it's really hard to say that they are not leading contracts in the industry. I, I really think they really are some of the better contracts, some of the better work rules. You will find singular better provisions of different uh, passenger carriers. When you take the totality of the contracts, they're pretty strong at, at some of these uh, carriers. So that's that's going to get a lot of people... I think maybe into cargo, maybe into the corporate side as well. You know, the big thing with the corporate world, a lot of them is the home basing. You're seeing you're seeing this new generation of pilots coming, putting a, a much larger emphasis on quality of life, at least from the data I see, uh, putting a lot, lot uh, bigger emphasis on quality of life over necessarily maybe the huge paychecks. And so maybe you find a happy medium where you're home every night, or you don't have to worry about commuting, and you're you're you know maybe gone four or five days of the week, and you're home four or five days. And you don't have to worry about, you know, jump seat and all the other stuff. So you're seeing a lot of this enter. And I do think some people will make that that decision to go um, freight, that decision to go with uh, corporate operators. Uh, I think there's there's no doubt about it. But, you know, going back to it, you know, everyone has to kind of decide what works for them as a career. You know, and like I tell my students, you know, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you're not a middle of the night person, don't pick a night freight job. You know, if that's if you hate me, don't do it. But um, uh, everyone has to find out what works for them. And, and I think they will. And I do think there'll continue to be some opportunities as you point out. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, furloughing some of these pilots will absolutely cause some to leave and not come back. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's just really interesting how, uh, a normal downturn just affects certain spots. Like this is affecting everything. Like clearly the whole economy, but aviation in general, it's affecting the mindset of a pilot and what they want to do, what uh, what job they deem the best job. It affects uh, how a company operates. I mean, American Airlines could be like, all right, well now we're going to launch American Airlines cargo only because we can't 
fully give up that amount of money. And that seems to bring a profit consistently. Uh, it just, it is truly changing the whole game and it's giving everyone in the airlines, maybe an equal opportunity to figure out what they're going to do in the future. And who knows who's going to come out on top. We might live in an, in a weird world where people are going to want to be, uh, or they're going to be flying a legionnaire to Shanghai on a 787. I mean, I don't really know if that's possible or what will ever happen, but we truly don't know what is going to play out. Um, it's just a very interesting time. I, I, yeah, it's just like all I can say. I think everyone's just right now just kind of racking their brain and just, just, we just want some kind of known. We're, we've been living in the unknown ever since it started and we want some kind of idea of what's going to happen, when it's going to happen and how to plan for it and <laughs> what to do, you know? Well, I think that's right. There's a, there's also a psychological component. You know, one thing that we really haven't talked about a whole lot, but uh, as we all know, the industry was going along gangbusters, right? In January, February, you know, you're a pilot in this industry, you're loving life, you know, you've got a bright future ahead of you, there's all these retirements coming up, you're going to move up your seniority list quickly, you're going to be on the wide body, all the things you've ever wanted to do. And there really was nothing in front of you that was going to interrupt that, it seemed, right? We solved all of the problems with ancillary income, you know, all the other things we've talked about in the past. And then just all of a sudden, overnight, we are on the absolute opposite feeling. For that and psychologically, I think you mentioned that it's, it's 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 been really disturbing for pilots because you know how can you go you know I guess it's the age old thing would you rather kind of have a, a lukewarm temperature or, or a nice you know hot temperature and then all of a sudden a cold temperature for a while you know and again that goes into the decision making when you join this career right you know um, it's just one of the things that that can happen you just uh, you have to decide what's best for you if you want more of a of a balanced approach, not too many highs, not too many lows, you know, maybe become uh, become an accountant or uh, go into some kind of a, a trade craft that pays well, you know, that would make more sense for you. But if you're okay with handling some of this, and if you're particularly good at, at managing your personal finances, uh, to handle these ups and downs, even when things seem to be going really well, uh, and then psychologically, you can handle the change almost overnight in this case, then uh, you can get that, that, uh, cockpit view for your office. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, I've said this a million times already. Well said. Like I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, I kind of, this is the last question I have for this episode. We'll wrap it up. And like I said, we're going to probably be doing more of these, like you said, throughout the year. So uh, we'll be uh, doing this pretty regularly. Um, what is, you, you, you have an understanding of what's going on in the industry. Obviously we can't really compare this to anything. Cause like we, we've said multiple times, this is such an unknown. What are, what do you think we're looking at? What, if you could just guess, put a timeline on it. Are we looking at maybe two years until we get back to quote unquote normal or four years, five years, six months? What do you think uh, just based on say the States open up, nothing really comes back in perfect case scenario. What would you imagine? Well, if you, if you were going to force me to, to make a, a little bit of a forecast here, here's what I would say. I would anticipate barring another CARES Act or CARES Act extension. I would anticipate um, a, a, a furlough at the big three for sure. Um, you know, uh, American Delta United. I don't think it's going to be as big of a furlough because I think that's just too much of a risk. I think the company would rather take a little bit of an overage. I do think passengers are going to come back. and I do think we're going to be able to hit that 50% uh, load factor level, break-even load factor level, at least by the end of this year. That would be my guess. Uh, I do think to get back to... The passenger levels we saw prior to this pandemic, you're probably looking at a multi-year recovery, two to three years. Um, the one thing is that we have going for ourselves is uh, I think there's a lot of pent-up demand. There's a lot more stimulus that's entered uh, globally. 
And also there are aspects of our economy that are doing well, for instance, banking. And traditionally, uh, economists will tell you when we get into a downturn, one of the things you're concerned about are your banks. But right now we have liquidity through our banks. So maybe this won't be quite as long. But I think before we get to the same pasture levels, we saw you're probably looking at a two to three year period. But that being said, that doesn't mean that the hiring won't resume before that. Because remember, we've, we're going to have some furloughs now. Some of those folks won't come back. We're going to have uh, passengers return. And also, we're going to have a lot of retirements. And so we may not have the growth at the main lines like we've had in the past for a few years. You're certainly probably going to have a need for new pilots. And that would be, if you were to force me to, to make a prediction, that would be my, my thought about what's going to happen. But uh, I don't, you know, I, I haven't run any analysis on this because, you know, just like we've seen with these models for COVID, right? I mean, I look at the state of North Dakota where I live in, you know, uh, this time last week, we were predicted to have 32 deaths. I looked this morning, we're predicted to have 166 deaths. I've seen this thing go up and down like a yo-yo. And uh, I, I look at the forecasts that are being made, and these are some of the best forecasters in the world. And they have been so wrong about so much. And I don't blame them. It's not a criticism. It's just it's really hard to forecast. So what I'm telling you is, is more based on my gut feeling than based on any type of analytics that I would normally use to make a forecast. But that's that's what I see happening. I see uh, I see us stabilizing uh, by the end of the year uh, a lot better. You know, I don't think it's as, some people are saying it's going to be years before we even get back to the 50% level. I just don't see that at all. I think there's going to be a lot of demand. And that's barring best case scenario, you know, no second huge outbreak and all that, correct? Yeah, you know, that, that second outbreak is going to be kind of interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, everyone's talking about another outbreak and and it's very possible, right? All the, all the experts are telling us. I mean, I think it's, it'd be silly not to prepare for a second. We have so much more information now. I think we know way more about the symptomology of this. I think we know way more about how to treat it. Uh, and we're watching our doctors in this country and just in, in medical professionals country, just do an amazing job as they wrestle with this thing, trying to figure out, you know, what's best for this patient, what's best for that patient. And I got to tell you, I've read, I've read four clinical studies in the last two weeks, starting with the remdesivir study, but there are other uh, studies. There was a triple viral antiviral study that just came out, uh, pre-published in the New England Journal of Medicine, either that or the Lancet, I have to go back and look, but they're looking at interferon with two other antivirals. It's having similar effects. So I think in the next month or two, we're going to have a lot of good news on therapeutics and our doctors are going to get you know even better. Um, but barring, so, so the next, if we do get another outbreak, I think our, our testing will be better, our contact tracing will be better, our therapeutics will be better. So even when and if we do get that, it's not going to be as uh, devastating as it was this time because there's so much more known about the pathogen. That's just my opinion on it, but that seems to be, I mean, if you were to take a survey now, of people versus a survey at the beginning of this, even though people would still be generally worried about this, I think there's a lot more understanding and that's going to help alleviate some of that. That's my thought. Yeah, I would agree. And let's hope so. Let's hope that's the case. Let's hope we're better prepared and that uh, we don't let it turn into what it has turned in now and just completely shut down the economy. And even worse, I mean, just have multiple and thousands and thousands, a hundred thousand people die. We don't want to go through that again, for sure. As a, as a world, as a country, as just people in general, we don't want to see that. Uh, I know I said that was kind of the last question, but I just remembered something I read the other day. It, it kind of irked me the wrong way. It was uh, 
Boeing came out and the, the CEO of Boeing said that he foresees a very good possibility that a major airline or an airline will go under. Uh, what, what do you think the purpose of him saying that was? Like, I just don't understand. I don't, I don't see what good that does. Like, even if you do see that, like, shouldn't there be some kind of spark for confidence or uh, just have some kind of confidence in your airlines that they'll be able to get through this? Um, I feel like there could be some uh, airlines might not really like the fact that they came out and said that. Is, is, has that been the case or did you read that article? I haven't read that article that actually surprises me because uh, I don't know if it was an off, off the cuff remark or a remark made during an interview, but uh, uh, I agree with your, your, your first reaction to that. I, I don't think people that buy your aircraft, you want to go out and, and do that because if that rattle, you know, it, it, someone from someone from Boeing saying that actually that carries a lot of weight and credibility. And so if I'm a shareholder at one of those companies, I might start thinking, well, is it my company? And uh, then I start getting nervous there and maybe I start selling, maybe I start doing all kinds of things, which would be ridiculous, but that could cause, a, you know, sometimes the, um, the uh, forecast, it, it can become the reality, you know, what you, the worst that you think might happen, you might kind of make it happen when you're in a position like that. So I agree with you. He really needs to uh, uh, make sure he walks that back if that's not what he meant. And if it is what he meant, he needs to uh, really rethink about broadcasting that publicly. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I can see why some people might look at the balance sheets and, you know, you look at like the amount of debt that's owed. But, you know, um, long before a full-blown liquidation would ever occur, which I just don't think would, we'd go through a bankruptcy reorganization at one of those carriers, which would basically allow them to operate and get back on their feet. And this has happened a lot in the past. Bankruptcy laws have changed in the last 10 years. They're not quite as friendly to the bankrupt company. But that being said, before we ever get to that point, there's a lot of things that would have to happen. So I, I disagree. One, I disagree with that. Two, I agree with uh, your your reaction to that. That doesn't really make sense to say something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And you think maybe, I don't know, maybe it was uh, translated wrong. Maybe someone heard it wrong. But yeah, I'm looking at, I just Googled it and it says, Boeing CEO predicts a major US airline will most likely go out of business because of this this virus. So it's it's interesting for sure. Uh, uh, you just wonder what kind of we all need to come together in this situation. I know that that's hard to to hear. I mean, you hear that over and over and over again, but it's just true. Uh, there's no point in even to say if American goes out of business. There's no point in Delta saying, "Oh, Americans go out of business, come fly us." It's like we don't want to see that. We don't want to see people no. lose their jobs. We don't want to see an, an, a historic or any airline whatsoever go out of business because that just means so much bad for the people that work that airline and everything. So yeah, it, it's interesting. I'd love to to talk with them and be like, "What happened, man? What's going on? Who pissed you off?" You know, it's like why? But like, yeah, I mean, that's just. It was interesting. I wanted to see your thoughts on that. See if you had any inside information of what he was actually trying to get at. Maybe, maybe he didn't mean what he said. You know, we'll just go with that and give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, or if you're a conspiracy theorist, like a lot of people that talk to me, you know, maybe he, maybe he did that so uh, it helps position for a CARES Act extension after September as well. You know, you bring <laughs> up a good point. You don't know. I mean, I there's know. a lot of conspiracy. I don't know. Yeah, you bring up a lot of theories out there. And like we kind of talked about earlier, some airlines are are being more vocal than others. Is that because it's true or is that because they are trying to find other ways to save money with uh, with their unions so, and contracts? So it's very interesting. We don't know what kind of, we don't know the game that's being played right now by everyone in every airline. So it's definitely interesting times.
Uh, Jim, I appreciate you coming on. This has been the longest one we had. I feel like we could talk forever. Oh, we have to do this again. We should probably do this like weekly or, or bi-weekly as we can, just so we can get that that current and uh, constant uh, changing information out there. But I appreciate it. Like I've said in every single episode, uh, we definitely need to have you on where you have the opportunity to, to share your story because you are very smart and you've done a lot in this career and for aviation. So I'd love to highlight you one day. Uh, we'll definitely have to do that. Well, looking forward to it. And thanks for having me back and happy to talk with you anytime, Justin. No problem. Have a great day. Avi Nation, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Like I said earlier, please leave me a review on iTunes. You can check us out on our website, pilotthepilothq.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon or buy me a coffee if you don't want to do the Patreon route. All the links will be in the bio below and make sure to follow us on Instagram. Avi Nation, I hope everyone is staying safe out there and I hope you get to fly if you are currently employed by an airline or a corporate, whatever it may be, student pilot. I hope you guys are all going to fly because as I've seen, flying is very, very therapeutic therapeutic in this time. So stay safe out there and wash your hands. And as always, happy flying.